When I was uh, growing up, I don't think they meant to tell me this, but I learned from my youth pastor, my Sunday school teacher, from my church, this idea. That sex is dirty, so save it for marriage. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Now that I've been a pastor, I've heard a lot of different things about sex and sexuality and how it impacts relationships, people's lives internally, their emotions, their thoughts. And culture-wide right now, we're kind of having a discussion. You, uh, if you're on Facebook, if you walk into Target, if you look at your television advertisements in between uh, the different segments of your favorite television show, there's a lot of discussion and intimidation around, around sexuality. What I did as a way to get us started is I pulled a few things that I've heard in the last few months around the life of this church. Don't look around the room. My youth pastor told me I'd feel shame if I had premarital sex, but I didn't. I just wanted more of it. My wife won't have sex with me anymore. I feel lonely, deprived, resentful. My sex drive is strong, but I don't have a mate. I'm not married. I'm 35 and my clock is ticking. Sex is not comfortable for my spouse and I feel guilty asking for it. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of homoerotic dreams. I can never tell my wife about that. I had an affair, and I'm deeply ashamed it's over. Yet I keep comparing my spouse to the empathy, excitement, and adventure of that brief interlude. And my shame deepens. Porn is so much easier. I don't have to deal with another person's emotions. My wife was abused as a child. I thought my love would get her past it. But she withdraws and she cries and I feel cheated. We're about to embark on a series that is incredibly emotionally laden. And that's okay. I can't come to this subject at our age in life without some experience, information, knowledge, sights, sounds, images, and they are stuck deep in here and in here. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to just take our time and plow through some complex issues. Not in a scandalous way, but certainly not in a prudish way. That's why there are signs outside the doors. And what I would like for you to think about doing, beginning like right now for the next four weeks, today being week one, is to just kind of go on the journey with us together. I, I, think, I think what you'll experience if you go on the journey with us, not just in a one-off kind of way, but for a few weeks, I think what we'll be able to do is strip away some of the raw emotion, some of the experiences that were illustrated in some of those statements, and we can get to a healthy, biblical discussion about what God meant to be such a wonderful source of joy and pleasure in our lives. It's going to take some work to do that. A little, a little bit of personal discipline on your part to engage and listen, keep your mind open. Now, as we get started, I want to make a couple of observations. Now, some Christians say a lot of appalling things. 
and the subject of sexuality. I'm reminded of some recent news broadcasts that I've seen of Christians who picket various events. And the one sign that always strikes me is the one, God hates fags. And that's, you know, Christians. And here we are in a church. Yeah, Christians say a lot of appalling things sometimes. But there's another reality and observation before we get fully rolling I want to make. Is that a lot of people who live outside the biblical value, and we're going to talk about that. A lot of people who live outside the biblical value for sexual expression have found that some Christians are incredibly kind, accepting, loving, respectful, welcoming. And so the truth is, is behind the headlines, there's an awful lot of grace and love in many Christian environments. There's a third observation, somewhat disjointed, but we'll bring them together maybe. I don't think anyone stopped you when you walked in the door of this Christian church and asked you who you were sleeping with. If they did, I'd be surprised. Now, the truth is, on some level, very real level, I don't care who you're connecting your genitals to. Just don't. That's not the purpose of the conversation over the next four weeks. The purpose of the conversation is for us to discover God's heart on the matter. For you to think about God's heart on the matter. To go to the pages of the Bible and discover, make sure we understand what it says. And then for you to make a values-based judgment about what you're going to do with what it says. My job is to keep the temperature up on the subject. My job is to be clear in communicating what the Bible says. My job is to help us make connection points between what the Bible says and what you want to do with your life. My job is not to parent you, correct you, scold you. Because my fourth observation is this, that whoever you are sleeping with, whatever you're doing with your genitals, God loves you. And I, and I love you. And this church has a history of accepting people with all kinds of brokenness, including sexual brokenness, all kinds of activity, including sexual activities. And what I want to do today is appeal to your mind in the middle of a bit of an emotional discussion, and I want to appeal, appeal to your heart as well. So what I have are five guiding questions for us to begin to discuss and this is the beginning of a conversation. We'll drill down over the next few weeks. Here's our first question. Why does God care who I sleep with? Why does God care who I sleep with? I mean, it's my body, I'll do what I want, right? Isn't that, have you heard that? It's my body, I'll do what I want. Well, of course it's your body. You can do whatever you want with it. Of course you can. But this question assumes that God does care. And that question and that assumption would be correct. God does care who you sleep with. In fact, let's get it out on the table right now in a clear and tangible way that the God of the Bible made sex to be exercised within one context only. And I don't do you any favors by trying to hide this or shield this. You can't read the Bible very long at all until you come up against its very clear sexual ethic. That one man, one woman, in the context of the covenant of marriage. That's the biblical ethic. 
That's the thing that if you pursue a relationship with God, you're going to keep bumping up against. I mean, there's no way around it. You have to jump through all kinds of intellectual loops. You have to create all kinds of logical inconsistencies and varied approaches to interpreting the Scripture to get around and scoot around that sexual ethic. It reminds me of W.C. Fields, who was an actor back in the uh, 20s and 30s. And somebody, and he was known for, for having a, a debauchery-filled life. And somebody walked in on W.C. Fields reading the Bible in his actor's trailer. And so they were a little, they were a little surprised by that. And they said, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he said, I'm looking for the loopholes. Yeah. And yet it's the biblical sexual ethic that creates so much angst in our modern American culture. When you look at the the Ten Commandments, it's easy to either agree or dismiss them. Like go through the first four, they kind of deal with God and eh, whatever. You start getting through the lesson, and most everybody will agree with them until you come to the one that says, do not commit adultery. And that one is a game ender. It's a game ender because our experiences as individuals, our experiences as a culture, the conversations we're having as a culture, the values we have as a culture run smack against that clear statement. And a lot of people hate this because it rules out a lot of other things. It rules out me sleeping with someone I'm not married to. It rules out you doing things with your genitals with people you're not married to. And what it doesn't do is it doesn't make sexual immorality unforgivable. I imagine that there aren't very many people in this room, myself included, who haven't done something sexually outside of God's standards. All of us have encountered who have following Jesus and have stepped outside of God's sexual ethic. We've all encountered incredible forgiveness and grace, acceptance. There's the two tensions, the two focus points that we hold in tension. A clear biblical ethic and an unbelievable grace and acceptance and love when the ethic is broken. Many of us in this room, myself included, have encountered a love and a restoration offered by Jesus. When we've had to deal with the fact that we walked outside of God's sexual ethic. Let's just talk about why does God care who I sleep with. Here's the first observation. is that everyone, everyone in this room, everyone in the culture, everyone on television... Everyone has a view of what is morally acceptable and not acceptable concerning sexual behavior. Everybody does. Nobody is totally careless about this idea. Everyone cares and has an opinion about certain types of connections that are acceptable and not acceptable. Morally good, morally bad. Right and wrong. If I'm married and I sleep with someone who's not married to me, most of you, whether I'm a pastor or not, will assume to some degree that's not acceptable. You have an opinion. You have made a moral judgment. If I'm married or not married and I sleep with 
somebody else's spouse. Most of us in the room, not everybody, will have an opinion about that. If I sleep with, let me just kind of get weird for a second, if I sleep with my sister. <sighs> Most of us are going to feel very uncomfortable just with me even saying that. Let's suppose I slept with a 13-year-old girl or a boy. Most of us have a reaction that illustrates a moral value we carry in here towards my behavior if I were to do those things. I haven't, by the way. No need to. Don't tweet yet, right? We're not to tweetable moments. <laughs> we're just not there, all right? Yeah, everybody believes there are limits. You believe there are limits. I believe there are limits. We all believe there are limits. It's not limits in and of themselves that we have a problem with, is it? The real question is not, why does God care who I sleep with at all? But why are God's opinions about who I sleep with different than who I want, different than my opinions? And maybe constrain me to not sleep with people who I would like to sleep with. The challenge for us really is, why are God's opinions different than mine? Not that you're not allowed to have opinions at all. But why is that? Why why are God's opinions different than mine? Different than my natural inclinations. Different than our modern American society. Right now, at this time in our history. If my opinion is right, isn't everybody else's opinion, including God's opinion, wrong? If I'm allowed to do what I think is best and anybody disagrees with me, isn't theirs wrong? Isn't God wrong? If not, what's going on there? Because it's not an issue of there are no limits. You have them, I have them. I make judgments about other people's behaviors and so do you. You can't stop it. We care deeply about these issues because we know they have far-reaching implications. So civilizations have differed on sexual issues and ethical challenges. In fact, in all cultures where we disagree on all kinds of things, in all societies, we find that God wants to speak into all of them. God wants to, let's forget sex for just a moment, God wants to speak into our economic ethical issues. Across time and space, if there is a God at all, if he has a right to speak to the world, then he has an opinion on the world. And in all societies, in all cultures, his opinion differs regularly with what's happening in the culture. God says it's not okay to use your money to create for you a position of power so that you can operate in abusive ways to other people. You can't do that and follow God's financial ethic. It's not even that we have a hard time with God having an opinion about our ethics. But when it comes to sex, this one rubs us wrong. In fact, you could go to some parts of the world and they would say to you, Hey, we largely agree with God's sexual ethic. We kind of like that, but there are other parts of his ethic we don't agree with. I could take you to some communities that are in lockstep with God's sexual ethic, but they don't really like what God has to say about forgiveness and grace. They don't really like live that out. Toe the line, low. 
in our modern American society, when anybody reads the Bible, here's what I hear regularly. I love what God has to say about love, forgiveness, you know, grace. Man, I am with him. <laughs> but I don't really like it when he speaks to me about the sexual ethic that he holds with great clarity. Because it's so clear and I can't really avoid it, then I have to do the runaround, look for the loopholes. Or I have to, here's the other one, dismiss him completely. Here's the truth. No matter what you believe about God's sexual ethic, here's the truth. Your belief in it or not believing in it has nothing to do, doesn't even speak to whether or not Jesus has in fact risen from the dead. I have to make this point clear because when a church does a sermon series on sexuality, here's what some of us are thinking I'm going to do, and I'm not. I'm going to try to get people to live right. I hope you live right. I'm trying to live right. My wife's trying to live right. I hope you live right. We're engaging this discussion not because I'm trying to get you to live right so much as I want you to be able to trust your heavenly Father in every area of your life. Financially? Your salvation? And what you do with your genitals? And in our modern American culture, it's that one commandment, do not commit adultery, and all of Paul's teachings and all the various associated issues related to God's sexual ethics seems to be creating the most argumentative cultural debate, internal angst, frustration with the church, and because, here's the logical inconsistency, because people reject God's sexual ethic recorded in the Bible, then they reject God. As if somehow, because they disagree with him, Jesus is not risen from the dead. So what we have to do is you have to pull it back a little bit. See, the challenge is, is that in all cultures, God is speaking in and saying, you're not quite where I want you to be. And there's a group of people, Christians, ideally, who are saying, we want to pull ourselves because we value God. We value his word. We believe Jesus is raised from the dead. We've asked him to be Lord of our lives. We're going to pull ourselves towards his ethic. And we're going to do that with sexuality as well. And so the question I want to ponder in the middle of this second question, if my opinion's right, isn't everybody else's opinion, including God's wrong, is this. Isn't it at least possible that our sexual ethic should be challenged, ours, and not God's? I would like for you over the next few weeks to think about your sexual ethic in comparison to the biblical sexual ethic and ask yourself which one deserves to be challenged the most. Our sexual ethic, by the way, is incredibly powerful. Yours is, mine is, my personal one. And it's largely based on unprovable, deeply held convictions about what we think is right and wrong. And that's okay. But for a few weeks, why don't we just explore what are those unprovable and sometimes largely unknown to us beliefs that we deeply hold that impact our behavior, the way we view the world, the way we come to the subject of sexuality, and the way that we come to God. Some of you feel extreme distance from God 
because of where you have been sexually. That deserves for you to pause for a moment and just reflect on that. See, what we think about our personal sexual ethic is largely dependent on our third question. What do you think sex really is? Don't miss this. What do you think sex really is? How you answer this question is incredibly important. And it will have a profound impact on your life. What you believe sex is will have a profound impact on who you think should use it, when, and how. So, don't answer out loud, that'd be odd. But what do you think sex is? Here's one definition. Sex is an enjoyable, intimate, physical experience between two consenting adults. Now, if that's what your definition of sex is, then what follows is any two consenting adults are fully permitted and have incredible freedom and right to have sex with whoever else consents to have sex with them. How we defined sex sets our own parameters. In our modern culture, this is largely our definition. Two consenting adults doing whatever they want to do with their body, what they do in their bedroom doesn't matter to me. I'm largely okay with the second half of that comment. What you do in your bedroom, I care. I just don't want to know it. I think it has a big impact on you. As a pastor, I deeply care. But it's the front part of that. Two consenting adults and a physical union that's enjoyable, and that's enough. So we called this message today, It's Just Sex. Back when I was teaching high school, there was a popular song that came out. Parents hated it. Teenagers loved it. It was very catchy. You could dance to it. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. You remember this one? I had the whole thing memorized. It promoted the idea that it's just sex. It's just physical coupling that results in orgasm that's pleasurable, no harm, no foul. Enjoy. In fact, we've commissioned an entire segment of our culture, college-aged adults, and said to them, go enjoy, because eventually <laughs> you're going to be married and it's going to be over. <laughs> that's where we are in our culture. I think we should pause, slow down, and just see a little bit about what's really going on. See, the modern ethic says two consenting adults, but in, if you go to traditional cultures, we're not even at the Bible yet, here's what traditional cultures would say. That sex is an act of union between two adults already in a lifelong committed marriage, union, that produces physical enjoyment, marital cohesion, and children. So you like take God out of the equation. There are cultures all over the globe, both Christian and non. This is largely their definition. And interestingly enough, the Christian ethic, the biblical ethic, largely lines up with the traditional one as I've stated it here. But it adds a couple of interesting things. Before I even explore that, let's just look at the more traditional ethic. By traditional, I mean the American ethic of 50 years ago. 
You do understand that where we are in America today is not where we've always been. That the ethic we hold as a culture as laudable, praiseable, acceptable is not at all what was laudable, praiseable, and acceptable 50 years ago. And I'm going to suggest to you where we are today won't be where we're going to be in 50 years either. It's a moving target, this sexual ethic. If you believe that it is an act between two people in a committed union that brings physical pleasure, marital cohesion, and produces children, then that will, definition, that definition will constrain and inform what your personal sexual ethic is. The Christian ethic is largely here, except it adds this piece that never really gets talked about. In the biblical ethic, the traditional ethic is there, but it adds that sex is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people. It expresses unity and otherness, faithfulness, love and respect, acceptance in the same way that God expresses his love towards his people. So that any sex that doesn't illustrate the character and heart of God towards his people is outside the bounds, whether in marriage or outside of marriage. The Christian ethic is incredibly constraining. And isn't that the problem? We don't like to be constrained. I don't like to be constrained in what I eat, let alone what I do with my genitals. And yet for those of us that have decided that Jesus is in fact alive, and because he's alive, we dedicate our lives to him, that is the very thing he pulls us to. That in all of our lives, we are to reflect his values. And the way we treat people, our finances, the way we conduct business, the way we parent our children... And what we do in our bedrooms. I think that when I say I differ from God's view on who gets to have sex and when, I think what we're really doing is we're saying, I think sex is something different than God thinks it is. And this is where I'd like you to engage your brain. Because the biblical view of sex is incredibly sexy it is beautiful it's powerful it's life altering it's incredible and you don't have to go any further to see this in the bible other than in the old testament use of the phrase in our english translated to know and adam knew his wife and she became pregnant to know he knew her in the biblical sense that biblical word from the Hebrew into our English to know is yada. Yada, yada, yada. Right? So Seinfeld made that popular 15 years ago. And they got together, had a conversation, yada, 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 yada. And that yada, 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 that's the biblical to know, made it in comedic terms. But that is an incredibly powerful word. Because in the biblical sexual ethic, sex is more than just bodies coupling. It's more than just enjoyable orgasm. It is a coming together of souls where they're deeply known and committed. And sex then becomes more than the orgasm. In fact, the sexual union becomes something beautiful. Because one man, one woman, deeply known in a committed, trusting 
safe relationship, safe emotionally more than physically. So we've been kind of just plowing through a few questions, the last one being, what do you think sex is? Let me, let me take you to, to one more question as we just kind of keep peeling away some layers so that we can have some conversation over the next few weeks. Now, why do Christians make a, such a big deal about sex? I mean, why is it you can go into some churches and it seems like they really do want everybody to keep it in their pants? And that's the highest goal. You can go to some youth ministries, and it seems like the whole goal really is to make sure that people marry virgins. They are virgins, they marry virgins. Why is it some, like some parenting techniques that seems to... And let, let me, before we engage why Christians make a big deal, let, let me kind of turn it around. Why do we as a culture care so much about this subject? I mean, clearly we do. Clearly. Clearly, as a culture, this is a big deal, and we think the stakes are very high. That's why there are cultural arguments happening in pockets all over our society. People all around us are discussing and debating because they care deeply. Because we know, don't we, that it's not just a subject. It's not just an academic exercise. This subject impacts lives on a deep and profound level. Of course it's important to Christians and non-Christians. We'll fight about it. We'll argue about it. We'll draw deep, sharp lines about it. Let me just make a couple observations. People all around us will exercise incredibly tight, self-imposed restrictions on all types of compartments of their lives, about their diets, their behaviors, what homes they live in, where they work. We have all kinds of self-imposed restrictions that we live up to. And we don't think anything about it as a culture. In this town, you can go anywhere and you can run into people that do or don't eat meat. We don't think anything about it. Do or don't drink alcohol because of a deeply seated belief or experience. Do or don't drive certain kinds of cars that have certain kinds of miles per gallon. And we don't think anything about it. I mean, we'll talk about it, joke about it, but it's not a deep... The differences don't engender an argument deeply held beliefs on how you throw away your trash. If you come to my house, we, we aren't yet up to recycling. I just lost five families out of the church. <laughs> deeply held beliefs on how we do money. And people are prepared to sacrifice all kinds of things, self-imposed, because they have a higher authority, some moral sense that says, this is the right behavior, and we allow that. We're good with it. We think it's wonderful. We love the diversity. In our culture, a lot of people abstain from having a foreskin because of their particular religious beliefs. And if you pass them in the marketplace, there's no judgment. It's just part of the package of living in a, you know, a society of mixed beliefs. So whether you're vegan or Muslim or Jew or Christian or tree hugger, you get my bias in that, tree hugger. Um, I'm joking. Um, it's just a part of the package. It's just a part of the package. 
But when Christians say that part of our devotion to our high moral authority to God means that we place self-imposed restrictions on our sexual expression, now people stand up and we have arguments. No way are you, church, going to constrain who I sleep with. In no way are you going to make me feel bad about. Why? Why all kinds of self-regulation in all different kinds of life, but no one in the Christian community gets to stand up and say, our God has said this is what sex is, and because this is what sex is, we limit our sexual expression. I think it's because in our culture, sex has become a God to us. I think the reason we're willing to stand and fight is because our ability to express ourselves is connected deeply to our identity, and it's largely our highest regulatory value. I mean, think about it. Depending on whether or not you have had sex, you get a set with the cool kids at the cool table in school. Or if not sex in general, who you get to have sex with. Don't think that that's not a real reality today. I taught high school not that long ago. In our culture, not having sex is the worst possible reality for you. So if you're single, by the way, and you choose to follow the biblical sexual ethic, you aren't fully human, you're not fully adult, according to our culture. There are married people who have a pretty decent sexual life, but compared to what the culture seems to say should be the reality, it doesn't match up. And so here we have married people who are largely healthy and okay. One of them is feeling cheated because they don't get all the stuff offered over here on the cultural table. They aren't cheated in reality. Reminds me of the uh, somewhat inappropriate joke. There are a lot of them, by the way. I just had to scratch all the way through the message, of the old man and old woman sitting on the front porch rocking side by side in their rocking chairs. Been married 50 years on the 50th anniversary. They're rocking on the front porch, nice quiet breeze blowing in the front yard, and the wife reaches over and slaps her husband in the face. And he says, what was that for? And she said, that's for 50 years of bad sex. So he begins to rock, contemplate, he reaches over and he slaps her in the face. Very inappropriate joke. And she says, what was that for? He says, that's for knowing the difference. <laughs> we believe we're cheated when the sexual biblical ethic of Christians is being followed. Christians will feel cheated because of the comparative culture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about a movie. But this is my challenge. Housewives and husbands will all over go watch this movie. Men will go watch it so they can see boobies on the screen. Women will watch it and have an emotional, you know, potentially romantic, I know I'm being sexist here, uh, connection. But what will really happen is, is that thing that is a fantasy will be propped up as the expectation. And we won't explore what's really going on. Sexual bondage? Using somebody else as a masturbatorial aid, it just happens to be a real person. You could take her in and out of the picture, exchange her with any other person, and the movie and the story doesn't change. This happens in college campuses. It happens here in the north suburbs. Now here's the problem. 
Here's why God stands up and calls his people to do something different. God calls people everywhere to turn around. So people all around us are prepared to sacrifice all sorts of things because their highest authority says that they should. And Christians say that part of our devotion to God is we abstain from sex outside of marriage and sex within marriage operates within a mutually honoring, loving, and care-filled boundaries. I care how you experience me having sex with you. I care how you feel about it. You're not simply there for my enjoyment. It's mutual. It's love and respect, if I could borrow a phrase. And we pull from passages like Ephesians 5. Listen to these words from God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. This is to Christians, not the culture. Verse 25, same, same chapter. This gets read at, at, at weddings all the time. Husbands, love your wives. And this is where we get that uniquely Christian perspective. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives even as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. God calls people everywhere to turn from the culture, to turn from their own selfish ambition and to embrace his sexual ethic because it flows from his very character to us. So following Christ does cost you your sex life to some degree. You also gain a lot. In fact, Paul writes, I count all of the cost against me as dung, as crap, for the benefit of holding to Christ. That's financially, that's relationally, that's my goal's ambition, that's my ego, that's my pride, that's my sex life. It's all loss I've given up to gain Christ. This is why Christians are eager and still struggle to embrace God's sexual ethic because they understand that when they gain Christ more by doing life Christ's way, what they've given up isn't really costly at all. And sometimes we struggle with that. But the truth is, is when you encounter Jesus, you begin to understand that no cost is too high. I give him my whole life. Why can't he also have my genitals? So if you encounter Jesus and decide you want to follow him, it's at that point we begin talking about what you should do as a follower of Jesus with your sexual self. But in our culture, here in modern America, we believe our way is the highest and best. We've arrived. And to push against the culture's understanding makes you a religious or sexual bigot of some sort. You can go to Saudi Arabia, Uganda, Cambodia. I was in the Philippines. 
And the objections that we're discussing here in America today would not be the objections there. The sexual ethic changes, and it will continue to change, except that we don't believe as Christians that we have to have sex to flourish as people. Sex isn't our highest defining value, no matter what the culture says. And we don't believe that our sexual past defines us fully, because it's not our past, but it is the future we long for. It is the Christ we're pursuing that defines us. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 these words. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are words to Christians, not the culture. And that is what some of you were in this room, on this stage. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because God loves people. His love supersedes our sexual experiences. Gay or straight, monogamous or promiscuous, God loves people. And he calls them all to a relationship first and then those that are in a relationship with him to pursue his sexual ethic because he knows best for us. That's part of him being the Lord. I don't have a fight with the culture. I have words to Christians, to husbands and wives who are trying to eke out a mutually loving and beneficial and enjoyable marriage together as a part of their walk with Jesus. To young single people who, who are wrestling with the lie of the culture that if you're not connecting your bodies to others, then somehow you're missing out and you're less than fully adult. I want to say to them, Jesus was single, Paul was single, and they lived incredibly fulfilling and meaningful and purpose-filled lives. Because the sexual ethic falls under our Christian value of Jesus being the Lord of all of life. And that's the goal. Not simply what we do with our genitals. It's at that point, then, when one says, I want to follow him, and they encounter him. They believe that he is, in fact, risen from the dead, and they submit their lives to him. That doesn't mean we can't engage a cultural debate. You should. You should. You need to engage your kids. We're going to talk about that over the next few weeks. That's why you have to come back. But at the end of the day, the sexual ethic is secondary to whether or not Jesus is the Lord of your life and whether or not he gets to speak to everything. That's our job here in this place. We've looked at four questions. Let me give you a fifth one and then we'll close. For followers of Jesus, all right? So like if, you, if you're not there, it's okay. Just go along on the journey. Consider. Think. I want you to go along with us. And I think there's a lot of wisdom here, even apart from the fact that I believe Jesus is, in fact, the Lord of the universe. Here's our fifth question. Has stepping outside of God's sexual boundaries, as defined by the Bible, brought more or less regret into your life? This is a question we're going to pursue over the next few weeks. N not exclusively. In fact, I'm going to take a little bit of time to explore it directly. We're going to spend some time talking about why sex has to be a vital part of your marriage. 
we're going to talk about how to talk with kids a bit about sex. That's going to be a part of what we're going to do. We're, we're going to talk about sex within the larger frame of intimacy. We're going to push some boundaries. But can we just acknowledge followers of Jesus in the room? Every time I've stepped outside of God's boundaries on anything, it's cost me. But I really can trust his heart for me. You can too. I can trust his heart for me in my money, in my relationship with my wife, in how I deal with my parenting, in my pride, in my ego, in my hurt, in my ambition, and with my genitals. I can. Because he loves me. And he accepts me. And those failures don't define me. Let me read you just a handful of statements I wrote about what I think is a more full theology of sex. And then this is where we'll land over the next few weeks. I think sex is a part of God's creation that is very good. Those are the words he used. Long before there was a fall in sin, there was sex, and God said it was good. I think in its purest form, sexual intimacy is like the intimacy we have with God and God's love for us. That the purity of that love existed before sin. So sex is very good. In fact, the Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled. It says to enjoy the wife of her, your youth. May her breasts satisfy you all your days. I'll never forget the day I discovered the Song of Solomon. And I could not believe that was in the Bible. I think reproduction, which normally takes place only through heterosexual intercourse, need not be the only goal of sexual activity. But the further sexuality is removed from reproduction, then the greater potential for harm. That's why in marriage, God gives big value to children. But not exclusively. There's great value for pleasure as well. It's a both and. In our culture, the byproduct of sex that results in pregnancy is often seen as a disease. That's a problem in the Christian ethic. Number four, I think we're born with the capacity for sexual pleasure. And it's an intrusion of sin into our lives that attempts to distort how we express it and what we believe will actually satisfy the pleasure. That's why you have a major artist like John Mayer, when he plays his guitars, women, guitar, women swoon all over the place. Here's his words on sexuality. I prefer porn to women. It's less complicated. Because it's now just an orgasm. Not people, not relationships. Number five. I think that sexual interaction that's based primarily upon feelings is prone to perversion. And so that's true whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or autosexual. In a fallen world, feelings are not a reliable foundation for moral choices. I love her. She consented. I wanted it. She didn't say no. He didn't. That's why God calls us to get beyond our feelings. And number six, the most powerful for me, is I think our Christian gospel can redeem every dimension of creation. And that includes our sexuality. So no matter how you come to the discussion, Jesus is willing and wanting to meet you there. And as a church, we're going to create room for him to invade the conversation and ultimately, just, you know, full disclosure, to steer. We're going to let him steer the conversation 
And I'd like you to do that in your life as well. So why don't you do this? Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. We do really, really value feedback around here. So if you have comments, feedback, please use your Connect card and uh, we'll take that. If you want to email me directly, it's ben at fourcornerschurch.com. I don't have time to engage a thousand conversations, but if I begin to see trends, maybe I can address some of those uh, over the next few weeks, all right? Next step A on your card says this. It's the key point I was really trying to make today, that today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. See, the discussions about sex are secondary to ultimately who's in charge of your life. And I'm asking you to consider that because Jesus is no longer dead, but raised from the dead, that maybe he should be in charge of your life. You get to make him Lord and Savior. The Bible says you do that by confessing your sin. God, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And then you let him become the leader. You ask him to lead your life. The biblical word for that is Lord. I ask you to check next step A. When the card comes by at the end of our service, you just drop that in the offering bucket. And I'll communicate to you as long as I can read your email. I'll communicate with you about what it means for Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. In a moment, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to use my words, borrow your own, and look to God and say, God, wash me, forgive me, lead my life. Next step B for us is you want to get baptized. If you'd like to do that, check the box. Last week, we baptized four people on this stage. We celebrated the fact they go down in the water in their sins, and they come up washed, washed in the love and grace of Christ. If you want to be baptized or have questions, check the box, put it in the offering bucket. We'll communicate with you. Here's next step C. On your seat, there were catalogs for small groups. You can take those home, or if you already know where you'd like to join up, just write the number of the small group, L101 or whatever, right there on next step C. Number with the little hashtag and the number of the group, and you're in. One-step process, all right? Or take the catalog home. Look at it. You can go online. It tells you how to do that in the first couple pages. You can sign up for a small group there. Next step D says... I'm going to commit to attend as best I can all four weeks of the Love and Respect in a Fifty Shades World Message Series. Let's keep this conversation going. Let's peel back the onion a little bit. At the end of the day, maybe you walk away with a few things that you can use personally or you can share with people that you love. At the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is elevate the Lordship of Jesus in an area where there's a lot of brokenness and darkness. It's shining a light. So I want you to try to commit to come. Here's next step B. So I don't want to know the details. You're welcome to share. I just don't need to know, but who would say, I have some brokenness that I'm bringing to Jesus to be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified. Why don't you check that moment of honesty and let's pray about it right now. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you really are Lord of all. Lord of all of life, including our sexuality. God, I know that our culture is raging with the debate, having experiences, submitting to values. But God, I pray in this place, in this community, we'd shine a light in all of that. And we'd think a little bit more deeply, sophisticatedly, intentionally about what's really going on there. God, I pray that we would seriously contemplate what do we think sex really is? And where we disagree with you, we would let you mold us and shape us. Now, God, I pray for those of us in this room where this subject of sexuality has marked us, where there isn't just pleasure, but there's some pain and regret. I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would wash that from us. Where there's pain, there'd be healing. 
where there's regret, there'd be newness. Where there's fear, there'd be hope. I pray for each person in this room, Jesus, who's declaring, God, save me. I'm a sinner. Wash me clean. I give my life to you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.